as mentioned uh, earlier in the service, today we are starting this, this series on our shared vision here at Bethany. Now, the, the, the vision of a church really consists of the, the keystone pieces which a church sees as necessary in order to accomplish its, its mission. And so really we need to take a half step back here and ask the question first, well, what is our mission as a church? And you'll see that up on the screen here. Bethany's mission is to live our faith and share Jesus' love with all people, one heart and home at a time. And so we, have a congre- we as a congregation have, have really identified, call them four core strategies, which we seek to implement in our daily, weekly, yearly life as a congregation in order to accomplish that mission. And you'll see that, that vision then on, on the screen now. Bethany's vision is to help more people know Jesus' love as we, and here are those, those four keystone elements, as we worship God by coming together around word and sacrament, Grow spiritually by faithfully studying his word at home and together. Serve God and others by using our distinct gifts. And then share the hope of heaven by telling others about the grace of Jesus. And so today and over the next few weeks, we are going to be looking at each one of these bullet point values, core strategies that we employ as a congregation, starting today just with that first one, that we seek to help more people know Jesus' love as we worship God, gathering together as a body of believers around God's word and the sacrament. And today, in order to help us understand better uh, why we do this thing called church, why it's so necessary in our lives, we are going to, to do so by looking at God's word as we find it in Psalm 84. Now, even before we get into what is in most English versions of the Bible, verse 1, there's actually like a little header, a little forward to the psalm right before it. And so I want to look at that first. It wasn't printed, I don't think, in the the service folder. So you can see it up there on the screen. So the heading reads, for the director of music. So this would have been the the director of music at the tabernacle. So that tent structure which served as the, the centralized location of Israel's worship life or later on. It would have been the temple, right? The, the temple ultimately became that more permanent structure that replaced the tabernacle. So the director of music, whoever's in charge of music there, according to Getith, some kind of musical term most likely, of the sons of Korah, a psalm. Now these sons of Korah were a, a large family, it seems, of very talented musicians in Israel. And King David, during his reign, actually uh, took the time to organize these members of Korah's family, his descendants, to become the official musicians of the tabernacle. They were the ones playing the instruments and singing as people came into those courtyards. But when you read through Psalm 84, as we read through it earlier, you don't exactly find the profile of somebody who is right there worshiping God at the tabernacle. Really, it sounds more like the profile of somebody who has been, unfortunately, separated from the tabernacle. 
whether it was due to warfare, going off to war with the rest of Israel's able-bodied men, or maybe it was because the sons of Korah were such a large family that they didn't all need to be there at once and sort of served in, in shifts of a few weeks each year. We don't know exactly. What we do know is that this separation from that place of worship in Jerusalem caused a deep longing in the heart of this psalm writer. Now, we're not going to read through all of those verses again. I do want to highlight a few of them to start out here. Verses 1, 2, and 10. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I want you to, to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to imagine your best day ever in your best place ever. Like, maybe it's some imaginary place, or not imaginary, but some, some place that, that you would like to go someday that, that you envision just being mind-blowingly awesome. Maybe it's a place you have been, but whatever it is, think about it, visualize it, okay? For some of you, maybe that means that you are sitting on a sandy, warm beach somewhere, no cell service, you're out of range of the Wi-Fi, there's no way that anyone from the outside world can bother you, it's just you relaxing with your family, maybe with a cold drink in your hand. For others, maybe, maybe it's when you turn the corner onto Main Street USA and Disney World and you see that Cinderella castle off in the distance and it just fills your heart with such a childlike joy and thrill unlike anywhere else on this earth has ever been able to do. For others yet, maybe, maybe there's nobody else <laughs> in what you're envisioning right now. It's just you and your thoughts and a mountain lake and a line that you're casting into the water or I guess in Wisconsin, maybe a little more likely, you're freezing your tail off in a tree stand somewhere. Now imagine, though, that your best day in your best place ever isn't just a single day, but, but that you get to enjoy a thousand of those days right in a row. No work clock to punch into, no annoying meeting to log on for, just you in that best place ever. The reason why I wanted you to go through this little exercise is because I want you to understand what our psalm writer is saying here. I can beat that any day of the week. So just give me, just give me one day in God's house. In fact, even if I'm out in the courtyards outside the house, I wouldn't trade that away for a thousand of those best days in the best place ever on this side of heaven. You see, this psalm writer understands, and it's our first key point today, that God's presence is the best place ever. Now, the, the paragon, the, the archetype of this, of course, is when we will enjoy that presence separated from, from any shadow of sin or, or evil when we are enjoying that presence in heaven someday. Right? When, when we will 
see God's light and wisdom with our own two eyes of flesh, when, when we will know his love and his eternal plans, when, when we will behold our Father God and our brother Jesus and that, that spirit of holiness that they send forth face to face. And when that day comes, you'll get it. <laughs> And you'll know that that you wouldn't trade away even the first day of that for a million of those best days ever on this side of that glory. And do you know what your time will be spent doing in heaven? It'll be spent in non-stop worship. In verse 4, the psalm writer says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house they are ever praising you. Now, don't think that this means we are just going to be sitting in like the biggest church ever, sitting in a pew, singing, praying, listening to the best sermons. I, I, I'll be preaching them probably. Just kidding. <laughs> listening to the best sermons that, that you could possibly imagine, and, and that's what you're going to be doing nonstop, day in, day out, for, for all eternity. What it means is that whether you're eating or drinking, coming or going, every single thing that you do with every beat of your heart will be done in praise and honor and glory to the God who made you. And yet we do need to be a little bit cautious here. Because I think that sometimes we go about our daily lives with a mindset that says, well, I, I will be with God someday in heaven, right? That's when I will finally be in God's presence. What if I told you, though, that you could stand in the courts of the Lord right now this very day? What if I told you that you could worship God in his presence right this very moment and an hour from now and five hours from now and ten hours from now? And no, I'm not commenting on the length of today's sermon. This isn't some hypothetical scenario that I'm laying out before you. It's reality. In fact, it's our, our second key point today. God's presence is with us everywhere, always. Wherever our feet may take us, whatever our hands may be doing, those who call upon God as their Father and those whom God calls His children live in the presence of God. It follows them coming and going day and night. That presence is ever with us. And it means that we are called upon to worship God, not just for an hour here, but to worship Him with our entire lives. That presence is with us everywhere, always. And yet, the Bible is also very clear that this has not always been the case for us. Isaiah 59 verse 2 reminds us, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Our, our iniquities, our sins, because of these things, it means that by nature, trying to access God is like trying to shout to somebody on the earth when you are standing on the moon. 
It's like trying to see through a, a five-foot-thick, solid brick wall to somebody's face at the other side. Right? Access to, to God's love and God's protection are cut off because of our iniquities. Belonging in God's family is cut off by our sin. All of the times that, that we have worshipped so many other things with our hearts, with our lives, with our lips, rather than God himself. And so this means that, that by nature we don't deserve to be in God's house. We don't even deserve to be like relegated out to the, the outskirts of the courtyard somewhere or like living in a house down the street where we can catch a glimpse of God maybe every now and then when he comes out to check his mail or something. No, it, it means that we deserve separation, full separation from every shred of God's light and God's goodness and God's love. It means that where we really belong by nature is in hell. And that's why what the psalm writer says here in verses 8 and 9 is so important. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. In many cultures, in fact, throughout history, that term, shield, has been frequently used as a metaphor for the king for the, the ruler of a land. After all, a king, like a shield, defends his people from attacks, right? A, a good king will even go out to war himself in order to defend his people from the, the threats of enemy invaders. Now, in Israel, the king was an anointed position. This means that, that the person, the king, was specially chosen, set apart by God, and given the solemn charge to look out for the welfare of his people, the welfare of the children of Israel. Well, you and I, we have a shield. We have a defender from sin and, and from all of its consequences. In fact, we have the truest and best shield. We have the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We have Jesus. And like any good king does, Jesus goes to war on behalf of his people. Of course, he doesn't fight that great battle on some expansive plain with, with chariots and soldiers, with, with swords and other weaponry. No, he, he fights that fiercest battle on our behalf when he goes to his cross. On that cross, he is assaulted by sin by Satan, by death, even by hell itself. There, our shield absorbs every blow of justice that we rightly deserve for all of our sin, for all of those iniquities, for every time that our hearts have worshipped anything other than the God who created us. Because of Jesus' blameless life, though, because he has taken all of that guilt on his shoulders, your guilt and mine, because he now credits all of his own righteousness to you and me, to our accounts, do you know what that means? It means that the doors of God's house are flung wide open to you. We aren't even like stuck in the courtyard. No, Jesus ushers us right into the throne room of God himself. 
And you don't need to achieve some standard of holiness or of Christian living before that becomes possible for you. You don't need to even go to a certain place in order to access God. No, because of Jesus, God is with us always. So then, why church? Like, if I can worship God and and be in his presence when I am fishing, watching TV, gardening, brunching, why spend the gas money and the time to gather here on a Sunday morning? That's really what brings us to our final key point today. Yes, it's true that God's presence is with you always. And yes, it is also true that we are called to worship God in everything that we do. And yet, God's presence is with us in a special way when we gather for worship, when we gather for this thing that we call church, when we gather together around the word and the sacraments, singing the hymns, praying the prayers, meditating on God together God is here and he is giving us a foretaste of that which is to come. That scene that we read about earlier from Revelation 7 when we will stand not just with our families or or our closest friends, but when we will stand with all believers of all time in the throne room of God himself When we gather together for worship like this in the presence of God, it's like he is here and he is pulling back that curtain just a little bit so that we can see what is coming at the end of this long pilgrimage when we will eternally worship in his heavenly house. Also, when we gather together, like this around the word and the sacraments, hearing God's voice, tasting his forgiveness in the Lord's Supper, providing and receiving mutual encouragement for and from our brothers and sisters in Christ, God is also doing something amazing, something that we vitally, vitally need as he strengthens us for the journey, for the pilgrimage through this life. Here, God provides the strength that we need to bear up under the sadnesses and injustices of this life. The strength that we need to to say no to all those those shiny, tasty-looking lures that Satan and the world like to cast in front of us that, that they're hoping they can use to drag us off into perdition. The strength that we need to keep our eyes fixed on that road ahead and on what is coming when we finally, finally arrive at our true home. When we join and gather here for worship together, God is filling us up with that fuel that we need for that journey through this life. Jesus himself tells his disciples in Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. As we gather together around Christ, he is feeding us what we need to fill us with strength for that pilgrimage. 
up on the screen there, uh, you'll see just a, just a corner of the Chateau de Versailles in the outskirts of Paris, France. It is arguably the most impressive palace that has ever been built in this world's history. And there you'll see Bethany Lutheran Church, 530 West Parkway Boulevard, the building that you're sitting in right now. What's the difference between them? One of them is just bricks and mortar. The other is bricks, mortar, and the house of God. One of them might be a really cool place to go and visit on vacation, but the other one is the very best place that you could possibly hope to find yourself on a Sunday morning. Not because there is something inherently special about the location or the layout of this building, nothing inherently special about the materials that were used in its construction or those super comfortable pews that you are sitting in right now. But because this is where God's children, redeemed by Christ's blood, gather around his presence to worship him in unity as together we long for that day when we will worship with all the saints and all the angels in glory. Amen. Amen.